Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reform, spiritual literature, reading, especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Well, good day and welcome to another episode of the Reformers Podcast, a podcast hosted by Reformers Bookshop. My name is Tom Eglinton, the manager here at Reformers, and today we are joined by a special guest, Glenn Sunshine. Thanks for joining us, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, Glenn, why don't you, you start by introducing yourself? Uh, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> okay, um, I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University in the U.S., um, I also work extensively with the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I've been teaching worldview with them since about 2004. So what, and what, what I, does the Colson Center do, sorry? just oh, The, the Colson Center is a, um, a ministry that really centers around worldview and contemporary issues and how we should think about them as Christians. Okay. So I had been I'd been working with them. It's named after uh, Chuck Colson, a prominent American evangelical mm-hmm. um, leader, and um, so I've been working with them since about 2004. Yep. And along with that, I work with two other guys on a podcast called the Theology Pugcast. That's yep. P-U-G, like the dog. Yep. It was named after the pub that we used to meet in, the Corner Pub so, in Connecticut. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I've enjoyed oh. that podcast. Thanks for putting that on. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so, and you're you're married? Do you have kids? I, I'm I'm married for over forty years. Um, two grown kids. My daughter Elizabeth, uh, in two weeks, will be receiving her PhD from Notre Dame in biblical studies. Very good. So. Uh, and Glenn, the reason we have you on the show is that you've recently brought out a, a book called Slaying Leviathan. Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Religion. Have you been interested in the interaction between politics and religion for long? Well, my interest on it uh, in in the subject was really kicked off uh, due to some things that were going on politically in America a decade or so ago. And so I started, I, I had a certain amount of studies of this earlier, but I started putting more intensive work into it at that point. And um, over time, it, well, it just seemed like the time was right to come out with the book. Yeah, because it came out uh, late last year, I believe. and Right. Which is right around the time we've, we've seen uh, all sorts of interesting developments in terms of governments and the laws that they decide to make. Right. Yeah, it was actually released on what uh, was Election Day in America. There you go. That is the day it came out, early November. Yeah, good timing. Um, Now, let's start really broadly. What is government? Government is an institution that actually operates under God to maintain order in society. That's really basically the answer to it. Okay, so... um, in, in your book, you talk early on about this concept of spheres sovereignty or, or spheres of government. Um, can you explain that a little bit for us? Okay. The idea here is that government is not intended to be over every area of life. There are other areas that God put in place in society that, properly speaking, government really oughtn't interfere with except under some kind of extreme circumstances. So things like the family, 
um, uh, work and labor, education, uh, the arts. There are a number of these areas that you can find, actually, if you do a uh, detailed exegesis on the first couple of chapters of Genesis prior to the fall. These are all things that existed in Eden before sin entered the world and also before human government. Hmm. And the idea of sphere of sovereignty is that since they precede human government, government can't really claim authority over them. They, you know, they, they were here first. Yep. So the, these are areas that should operate autonomously, governing themselves, um, and the government is one of these spheres, but part of their job is to make sure that none of the spheres kind of overstep their bounds. Right. But government is there to regulate certain kinds of things, but not everything. Uh, so I, I was uh, teaching a, a Bible study on this topic for my church recently, and to, to, as I thought about sphere sovereignty, the way I explained it was I, I drew these circles on a board, but they overlapped. Because mm-hmm. it seems to me that there's situations that we all face all the time where, say, family government has a say and has authority, but so does church government and right. so does civil government. So it strikes me that it's a very messy situation. Is, is that accurate or, or are they quite distinct? Uh, no, they're not hermetically sealed. Um, all of them do have a certain degree of overlap. And where there is overlap, the usual... Uh, solution that is proposed is that the two sides have to cooperate. They've got to negotiate exactly what happens there. Right. Now, an example of this would be in Calvin's Geneva. Okay. Um, In Geneva, Calvin was very clear that the church wasn't supposed to interfere with the government and the government wasn't supposed to interfere with the church. Hmm. One of the big myths about Calvin is that he established a theocracy. He didn't do that. But there were certain areas where he said that both the church and the state had legitimate interests. So uh, feeding the poor, yep. you know, taking care, taking care of people who are in need. And under those circumstances, the church and state needed to cooperate to work out a system to do it, incorporating both people from the civil government and from the church. Right. So, so in these areas of overlap, you should have some sort of negotiated settlement between the parties because each of them has legitimate interest. Now, it seems, though, when you, when you look at particularly at our situation in the West, that what tends to happen is that the civil government takes more and more responsibility and we like to sit back and say, well, okay, you can have it. Right. Um, so is, is the the purpose of sort of understanding sphere sovereignty to say, well, um, you know, these these are areas that you have responsibility over, or, or is it to say, actually, these are the only areas you have responsibility over, if you, if you can well, get the difference, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that, that the thing that's useful about sphere sovereignty is, first of all, it I think it affirms something that God built into creation. Right. You know, that, that there are proper legitimate boundaries for different kinds of institutions in society, and those, those institutions need to honor those. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that that's an important element, uh, element here. Uh, but from a political level, since, well, sphere, in, in a fallen world, the spheres don't always operate the way they should. Mm-hmm. And frequently what will end up happening is you will end up with some sort of major disaster will take place. You know, the, the um, financial uh, industries meltdown uh, a decade or so ago, yep. whatever. 
And when that happens, the, the sphere is the, the way they describe that is they say the sphere is collapsed. Okay, it is no longer capable of functioning the way it ought to autonomously. When that happens, another sphere, usually the government, steps in and tries to take over, mm -hmm. tries to regulate it, control it, do something to fix it. Now, the fact of the matter is it needs fixing, but the problem is the government is competent to do things within its sphere, but when it oversteps its sphere, when it starts moving into other spheres, it tends to make them worse mm. because the government just simply doesn't have the tools or the expertise to really deal with that sphere. Um, this is simultaneously a recipe for major problems. Uh, consider, for example, the number of times socialist or communist states collapsed because the government was trying to control the economy. What happens? It falls apart because yes. the government can't do that. It's not equipped to do that. That's not its proper role. The other thing is, though, that once the government begins to infiltrate into these areas, and it doesn't necessarily even require a completely collapsed sphere to do it, you are moving in the direction of tyranny. Uh, tyranny can be defined as the government taking authority in areas that are not its, within its legitimate competence. Yep. So, I mean, an example that, that struck me in Australia recently is um, domestic violence. So uh, with, the, with the lockdowns from the pandemic, domestic violence went up. Mm -hmm because people right. don't like living together. And um, as a result, the government has ramped up these advertisements about domestic violence and seeking to put in place programs. Um, how, how would the idea of sphere sovereignty help us think about how we should be acting in a situation like this, where, where say, something like domestic violence, which clearly crosses over family, church and civil um, authority structures. How, how should we re be responding to something like that? Okay. Um, there's a theory in uh, Catholic social thought called subsidiarity. Right. And subsidiarity says that problems are best handled on as local a level as possible. Okay. So what should be happening here, I would, I would argue, is first of all, the government, I think the lockdowns are just a disaster because they're trying to solve one problem which, you know, frankly, COVID can be a really awful disease, but the mortality rate really isn't that high, you know, percentage-wise. Uh, that may be a controversial thing to say, but as I look at the numbers, it doesn't look, I mean, in my period, I deal with things like plague that killed half of Europe in three years. Yeah. You know, so so I, I maybe have a skewed sense of, of, of uh, size here. But... It doesn't take into account, all right, so let, let's say COVID is a real problem. It doesn't take into account the problems the solution is causing. Yeah. You know, it doesn't take into account the problems of depression, the problems of loneliness, substance abuse in America, uh, domestic violence, suicide. All of these things are objectively a consequence of the government doing what it did. Mm-hmm. So the question is, did the government do the right thing? Well, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not going to try to answer that. I'm not a public health expert. I have my doubts, but you know, that's not my 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 area. But how do you fix it? Yeah. Well, the way you fix it, I think, is to work to reinforce the family structure mm. and work to provide the. The fact of the matter is, people are social creatures. 
And when you lock them together in a very small group for a very short period of, or for an extended period of time, things can get ugly. We need, I, I would argue, we need to be opening up more opportunities, first of all, for people to get out, to do the socializing, that kind of thing, to, to connect with other people. And I think that the churches also ought to be stepping in at this point to work on uh, conflict resolution within families, to teach people coping mechanisms, things like that, to stand by, beside them with prayer, uh, all of these kinds of things. I think the church is in a much better position than the national government is to deal with stresses on a local level. Yeah, so really what you're saying is, um, as we understand the fact that God's given us different authorities, I, I'm, I have authority as a, as a husband and a father, I have authority as a mem- member in a church or, or an elder in a church, and I, I have authority as a citizen of a state, um, I should be thinking, well, how can I fulfill the requirements that, that God's given me in those areas, starting with my family, start, then with the church, and, right. not, and not just leave it all to the government who's going to inevitably take over wherever they can to fill those holes that I leave. Right. That, yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And like I said, I think the church has got an enormous potential for an enormous role to do a lot of good and to do more good than the state can do under these circumstances. Mm. Now, shifting gears a little bit, uh, let's, let's talk Bible. Um, it's clear from Scripture that uh, we do live in a situation where we have civil government um, mm. and we also are, as Christians, citizens of Christ's kingdom. And so there's this, there's always, there's this tension at play. Um, and so can you just talk us through the, the tension, I think, that, that is brought out by your classic government texts like Romans uh, 13 uh, and mm. alongside... Jesus' argument when presented mm. with this exact question around taxes. Can, can you talk right. us through how, how, this, how you think through these ideas? Yeah, people always tend to want to go to Romans 13 first. I think it's always a good idea to start with Jesus. <laughs> so what, 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 what Jesus says, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Yeah. Um, Jesus asks them for a coin. He asks whose picture is on it, by the way. Um, sort of implying a violation of the second commandment mm-hmm. about graven images. He doesn't go there, but he's sort of hinting in that direction, I think. But then he tells them, give to Caesar what Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Now, what that tells us is two things. Well, actually three. First of all, Caesar has legitimate responsibilities and legitimate rights. He has a, a sphere of authority. There are things that are Caesar's. However, not everything is Caesar's. There's stuff that's God's. Mm-hmm. And I think the third point is that God is the one who determines what Caesar and what isn't. And you, you know, you're what, getting that from the fact that Jesus is the one saying, here is, here is the line. Right. Yeah. So God determines what properly belongs to Caesar. Okay. But, you know, because, well, that, that's the whole point of sovereignty, isn't it? Yeah. So what that means then is again caesar's authority in this world itself is limited right now that was a radical idea in the context of the roman empire christians have always argued for limited government up to this point pretty much every state with maybe one or two exceptions uh every major state was effectively totalitarian the leader of the state controlled everything had authority over every area of life 
um, the de facto creed in the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. Mm. And Christians come along and following Jesus's words, they say, well, no, we can't do this. There are things that Caesar is commanding us to do that God says we shouldn't do. There are things that Caesar is allowing that are not things that God allows. Yep. And so we, we need to, first of all, carve out a sphere for us to say, you know, we will not participate in the imperial cults because we serve one God and one God only. Further, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Yep. Okay. But then along with that, they begin living a very countercultural lifestyle where, for example, they reject the idea of infanticide. They will, instead of killing their children, they will rescue children that are being killed. Yeah. There are instances, for example, where Christians were using fishing nets to pull babies out of the Tiber River where they'd been thrown in to drown. Wow. Okay. So they're, they're living a different lifestyle. They're living according, a to, according to a totally different set of values. And ultimately... When Constantine legalizes Christianity, actually what Constantine does is he declares religious liberty. Mm. He doesn't say anything specifically about Christianity, but in the process of doing that, it de facto legalizes Christianity. When that happens, the church has had 300 years of existing as a persecuted minority faith. This sets a precedent that says that the state doesn't control the church. The church is independent of the state. This is actually the beginning of sphere of sovereignty. This is where you see it. So there is this one area, the church, that Caesar doesn't control. But where there's one area that Caesar doesn't control, maybe there would be others. And so guilds begin emerging, and various other types of confraternities, charitable institutions, things like this begin emerging that are not under the authority of the state, except only in the broadest and loosest sense of the word. So that is really, you know, it is, it is that issue of the, the history of the church as this persecuted minority faith for 300 years that establishes the precedent that turns into sphere of sovereignty. Right, so this is all just flowing out of Christians trying to work out what Jesus... Right, Jesus it's all statement. coming out of render to Caesar, things that are Caesar's, but to God, the things that are God's. Yep. So one question that we should always be asking ourselves as the government begins um, dictating things, frankly, to churches in the midst of an emergency is what does belong to Caesar? Yeah. Does this decision genuinely belong to Caesar? Or is this something that is properly belongs to God and should be handled through the church? These are questions that are not being asked often enough. Well, I, in my experience of talking to, very, to, to various Christians around the place, often the answer is, well, once Caesar deals with uh, allowing me to preach or not preach, or, or what I'm allowed to preach or not preach, that's when he's crossed the line. Um, there, there are no other areas that, that he can mm. cross. What would you say to that? Uh, I would say that that is a rather anemic view of what our responsibilities are as Christians and what freedom, that uh, liberty is the word I would prefer to use, that, that God is giving the church. Right. Uh, I would say that, that Caesar can very easily overstep in those areas um, and use, use um, 
you know, an emergency, you know, in, in the in America, we have a thing called the Bill of Rights, which guarantees certain, certain liberties. And the question, the thing that keeps getting pointed out is there's no exception for the state to declare an emergency to suspend the constitution. You can't do that. Um, I would say the same kind of thing is the sort of thing that we should be thinking of in relationship to the church. Does the state have the right to step in and regulate things within the church when the state decides there's an emergency? I would feel much better, for example, if the state were to say, here are things we strongly recommend you to do, but as a church, you're going to have to decide how to handle these things. These are things that will promote safety and health in your church. Mm. Here's some advice, but it's, it, it is the church's decision how to deal with it. Yeah. And interestingly, I suspect those Christians who are currently feeling like they should be disobeying would probably obey in those situations. I think that that's exactly right. And so the, the disobedience doesn't so much have to do with what the command is, but how it's being made. Right. Yeah, the, there, there are proper procedures and things like that that ought to be followed. And again, unless you are willing to, and this is one of the problems, by the way, with state churches, unless you are willing to grant the government authority over the church in, in um, even in just certain areas, unless you're willing to say that that, that belongs to Caesar, it doesn't belong to God, then you've got to really think long and hard about how all these things work. You know, there are a lot of things that uh, that we've, you know, uh, part central section of the book. I talk about the development of the idea of of unalienable rights. Good, that's where I wanted to go next. So okay. please, please so, continue. <laughs> well, the you don't get the idea of unalienable rights by just reading a verse and proof texting it. Mm. It requires a lot of thought. It requires a lot of, of um, discussion uh, as different people bounce their ideas off each other to sharpen their understanding of the implications of the biblical text. Mm. It's not good enough just to say, we have to have a proof text for this or we can't do it. If the thrust of Scripture and the logical consequences of Scripture point in a particular direction— You've got to acknowledge that as being biblical, and you've got to obey it, whether or not you have a direct proof text for it. So, yeah. for example, in the area of unalienable rights, let's look at uh, John Locke. He says there are three, life, liberty, and property. He doesn't argue it this way, but I think he was well aware that you can develop that argument straight out of the book of Genesis again. God gave Adam and Eve life. Therefore, the state cannot arbitrarily deprive them of it. Yeah, and and even further than that, they can't deprive themselves of it, right? Right, exactly. And that's that's what you mean by unalienable, right? You you cannot divorce it it from yourself. Right. Since since it is an endowment given by God, God alone has authority over it. Right. Now, God has... God has given authority to the state to take life under certain circumstances, you know, arguably from Genesis 9. Mm-hmm. But that's life, liberty. Um, Adam and Eve are, are told that they are free to do... Now, what liberty means, by the way, is the ability to make decisions within boundaries. Right. You have the freedom to make decisions, but it's within the boundaries dictated by the law of nature or by divine law. That is what the concept of liberty refers to. Adam and Eve are told, 
eat anything you want to in the garden except that tree over there. So there is a boundary condition that is set, but otherwise they have freedom to act. That's where liberty is is rooted. So it's not proper. It, it, it's not um, license to do whatever it's you want. It's not license. It's it's liberty yeah. to to obey within the right. Yep. The, the alternative is license, which is freedom from any kind of restraint. Mm. Um, and in the modern world, for reasons which we can talk about if you want to. That's the only concept of freedom we really have. Mm. But you go back to the 18th century, 19th century, they got the idea of liberty, which is freedom within boundaries. Um, Property, uh, Locke's theory of property rights is called the labor theory of property. And the short version of it is, Adam and Eve, you you need to tend the garden, and then you can eat its fruit. So they're literally entitled to the fruit of their labor. They put something of themselves into the production, Therefore, they have a right to own it because they have a right. They basically they own themselves, so they own what they put themselves into. That's how Locke would, would formulate it. But you can get it right out of Genesis. Mm. You're not going to get any of those things by trying to proof text. You have to think about what the implications of this would be before. I mean, it took literally centuries for people to work most of this stuff out. Yeah. So, you you know, I can explain it briefly, but you're not going to get this by citing Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. You know, you just, it's not going to be there. You have to think about it. And those, the impl- that, that's an example. The implications of the text are just as important as the literal text itself, which is why I think the minimalistic approach that says, if, as long as they're not telling me what to preach, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'll obey the government. Um, what if the government tells you you can't sing in church? That happened in America. Yeah, We're commanded to sing yeah. in church. Um, what if it tells you you can't take communion? Happened in America. Why, another example might be, what if it tells you you can't go and visit your elderly parents to care for them? Right. Um, you can't meet, you, you cannot meet, on Sunday, you've got to do it over Zoom or something. Mm. Does the gov- Are those decisions that properly belong to the government? Yeah. Well, when I say yeah, I don't mean yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> You're saying yeah. Those are those are the questions. They're the questions. And it, and again, in t- you know, we're talking church, but your point: caring for your elderly relatives, caring for your spouse who's in the hospital with COVID. Mm. And is is in isolation. They're dying, and you cannot visit them. You cannot hold a funeral. Mm. What the government is doing there is it's stepping in and dictating what family can do, what what the responsibilities are within the family. And you you might say, well, yeah, you have the right to do this, unless I tell you you don't. That's effectively what the government is doing. They are interfering with the function of the family. So then if if Jesus' statement sets up a situation where there's some things that God owns and some things that Caesar owns, and Genesis is setting up that there's some things that God gives men and women that cannot be taken away from them, then how are we to understand Romans 13? People generally ignore one of the key points within Romans 13, where it says, 
that the government exists to reward the good and to punish evil. And therefore, you should obey the government. What happens when the government rewards evil and punishes good? Oh, does Romans 13 tell us? Romans 13 doesn't address that. Mm. Romans 13 is specifically in the context of the government exists to reward good and to punish evil. And if you don't want to have any fear of the government, don't do what's wrong. And when it says don't do what's wrong, it's it's meaning morally wrong before God, right? Not... Don't do what's wrong before the eyes of the government. Right. That That's the context, because it's reward good and punish evil. Yeah. So don't do evil so you won't get punished. But what happens if you get punished for doing good? What 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 happens then? What happens if the government rewards evil? And there are lots of governments that do. Well, that's right, yeah. So does that mean that you are responsible then to obey the powers that be? And that's the question. I would, su- I would suggest that that's not what Romans 13 is teaching. You know, the, the usual, again, minimalist approach is until the government tells me that I have to do something that God explicitly prohibits or prohibits something that God explicitly says I must do, otherwise they obey the government. That is sort of a minimalist view that doesn't take into account what we were just talking about before, the larger implications of what Scripture teaches about authority, about family, about uh, church, about all of these kinds of things. So there are circumstances in which what Romans 13 is saying I, does not really apply. Yeah. So essentially where we've got ourselves to is that uh, there, there are areas of responsibility that God has given to different governments, uh, that's, and civil government's one of them, but God has given... Uh, areas to men and women that the civil government is not permitted to interfere with. So that brings us really to um, an interesting space, which is what is the role of resistance to that government? I mean, the the title of your book, limited or subtitle of your book, Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition. Uh, Typically, people read Romans 13, and they say, well, our job's to honour the, the government and to obey them, and so uh, resistance is sort of ruled out. Uh, w- is that, has that historically been the view? People are going to write oh, the absolute, book to find absolutely out, not. Yeah, absolutely not. Now, we have to understand resistance means more than just taking up arms. Mm. Okay. So we, we aren't dealing... When we're talking about resistance, we're not necessarily talking about revolution or revolt. Right. Okay? Resistance can take a variety of forms. Um, in the modern world, when we are living in uh, a republic, uh, one form of resistance could be simply protesting and lobbying the government. Yeah. Um Civil disobedience is is another way this can be done. I mean, there are a range of options here for resisting. The I think we can sort of assume a priori that governments are always going to be engaged in overreach. Okay. okay. The question is, how severe is the overreach? What, what challenges does it give to our faithfulness as Christians, what challenges does it 
make for, well, families, churches, and other institutions that should legitimately be governing their own affairs rather than having the government dictate to them. How severe are these things? What are the range of options to try to, to resist? How tyrannical is the government actually turning is another way of putting this. So there, there are a range of options that are here that are on the table that didn't always exist historically. But, but in our modern or perhaps postmodern world, there are a lot more options that we have than, than had existed historically for expressing resistance against a government that is turning tyrannical. Yeah, and I think what, what you sort of challenged me with in, in the book is that we tend to, well, I, I tend to take an apathetic approach. The government's, you know, reasonably been, been half decent in the Western world for the last couple hundred years or so, you know, as it's been based on Christian values. So, it's, it's you know, it's going to try and do a good thing. Um, so I shouldn't, shouldn't really worry about interfering at all or getting involved. Um, so... One of the things that that struck me was before we even get to ideas of of taking up arms, which seem which you know may not even be a valid way of of doing it in our our type of government in a democracy. Um, right. There are an awful lot of areas where the government has uh, gone against its God given role, where where I and and we more broadly haven't done what we should have done. Um, so I mean, Schaefer, uh, probably what twenty odd years ago, in a Christian manifesto, he goes hard on abortion, um, right? And he says well, Christians should be protesting, you know, interacting with the government in terms of writing letters and petitioning, and even going so far as to protesting in a way that's civilly disobedient, in order to mm-hmm. to raise this issue to where it should be. Or he even pushes and says, maybe you should withhold some of your tax money just to, you know, make this point, because the government's doing a really bad thing here. Right. Um, what What's your view in terms of how areas where we should be interacting and and how the Christian Church should be really stepping up and thinking about this issue a lot more? Well, I. I can speak to a bunch of them in America, but I don't really know the situation in Australia so well. I have That's to right. admit. We'll, we'll take the American examples. That sounds good. Okay. Well, you know, abortion is um, is an important one. Um, uh, LGBTQ plus indoctrination in schools. Right. So it, what what, are we, what are kids are being teached taught? Yeah. Right. Um, broader uh, level of the. In, in America, we've got a whole series of ideological things that are grouped together under a broad category called critical theory, uh, the most prominent of which is critical race theory, that is fundamentally flawed on so many levels, both logically and, well, biblically. We, we should not in any way be, be supporting that. That's not to say that racism and such aren't problems. They are. But there are better solutions, and there are better solutions that actually align more with Scripture than CRT does. Mm. So, and you know, CRT is being imposed along with LGBTQ stuff. It is being imposed by the government on all kinds of institutions across society. These are things that we need to be fighting. Um, there are, you know, like I said, in, in terms of uh, racial issues. 
there are genuine racial injustices that are happening. We need to be on the forefront of opposing those, but not doing it on CRT terms. Yeah, doing it biblically, right? Doing it biblically. You know, the, the, the problem with critical theory is what it does is it divides the world up into multiple categories of people. And in each category, you can either be an oppressor or an oppressed person. And the problem is it creates tribalism and it denies really any kind of unity of, of humanity. It denies the image of God. Uh, it denies any real possibility of reconciliation. It, it's, it's a recipe for perpetual war, and I would argue it's actually a recipe for white supremacy. We need to be fighting this and, while and, at the same time opposing the, the problems that it is intending to address. Yeah, and, and it also positions the government as the solution which essentially right. absolves all other spheres of their own responsibility in this. Right. Uh, well, it doesn't only absolve them, it removes them from the equation. Yeah. They're taken out. You either, it, it, you either follow the dictates of the party or you get shut down. Yep. So uh, essentially what you're saying is there's a whole lot of areas where we need to be engaging more with our government. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you've given some of those ways, and, and there's more ways in, in the, the last chapter of your book that you, you deal with in terms of encouraging us forward in, um, I guess, fighting the giant leviathan of civil government that will keep growing unless we do something. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the idea of leviathan, uh, slaying leviathan, comes from Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes wrote a book called Leviathan in which he made an argument for absolutism. That is to say the government should have absolute authority in every sphere of life. Right. And my point, the, the point of the title is that this has never been part of the Christian tradition. Christian tradition has always been about killing Leviathan. It's always been about restricting and limiting government. Um, at least in terms of political theology, that has been a central issue. You know, and that, that's been the case for 2,000 years now. Yeah, and your book does a very good job of explaining that. Uh, thank you for writing it. Thanks for joining us on the, the podcast today. And uh, if My you pleasure. Know, Thanks for having me again. If you want to know more about uh, limited government and resistance in the Christian tradition, Slaying Leviathan is the place to start. Uh, you've been listening to the Reformers Bookcast. We've had Glenn Sunshine, and we'll see you next time.